Now, as we continued reading about Elijah last week in 1 Kings 19, we shifted our attention, focused on the discouraged, fearful, and frustrated prophet himself and the compassionate, generous, and patient God he served. God cared for Elijah at his lowest point now, then. And God cares for his weary servants at our lowest points now. He provides for our needs. He makes his presence known to us. He reminds us of who we are. And he puts us back on mission. And of course, the best reminder of God's kindness to his discouraged servants, the greatest hope we can look to in our own seasons of hardship, exhaustion, and grief is the life, death, resurrection, and future return of Jesus. But as we move ahead to 1 Kings 21 today, we turn our attention back to the villains of Elijah's story, namely King Ahab and Queen Jezebel of Israel. These wicked, ruthless, hard-hearted idol worshipers are up to their same old tricks from when we read about them last week. But this time, the target of their ire is not the prophet Elijah. It's a normal guy named Naboth, who was just minding his own business, caring for the land his fathers had passed down to him. But Ahab and Jezebel's actions toward Naboth seal their legacy as two of the most evil and just generally unlikable figures in all of Scripture. This part of the story teaches us some valuable lessons about mankind. And though it may sound a little bit far-fetched, this story points us ahead to Christ. We'll see how later. But with that, open your Bibles to 1 Kings 21. Feel free to follow along, whether you're here in the room or at home. But before we do any reading, let's pray together as a church. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you that as the weeks go by, we all get a little more comfortable coming here and worshiping you in person. Uh, Lord, thank you that there have been some good numbers coming out in the state of Indiana the past couple of weeks as far as the coronavirus goes. But I also pray that we wouldn't get too ahead of ourselves and wouldn't get too cocky, uh, but continue to ask for your protection over us and good health and safety, not just when we're here on Sunday mornings, but throughout the week as well. And thank you that on this Father's Day, we can thank you for the good fathers you've given us. And Lord, even if we don't have good fathers here on this earth, we can look to you as our good father. Not every father is in good standing with their children, and not every child is in good standing with their father. But it's by faith in Christ that we are in good standing with you. And so, Lord, remind us of that on Father's Day, and thank you for the good godly fathers in this church and the good godly fathers you've given so many of us. And Lord, thank you for this passage, this story, even though it seems a little bit removed from us and maybe even a little bit bizarre to us. Thank you that even this story can point us ahead to your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you. We worship you. We praise you. We ask this all in Christ's name. We thank you for this morning. Amen. Well, we'll begin in 1 Kings 21, starting in verse 1. Now, Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel, beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. 
And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value and money. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my father's. And Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen, because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. That's what I'll be doing later this afternoon when I think about the dad's root beer that I should be drinking, but I'm not. But 2020. Now, King Ahab needed somewhere to plant his kale, so he offered to buy the land next to his palace. But the owner, Naboth, turned Ahab down, which really Ahab's offer wasn't a bad one. But Naboth turns Ahab down because to him, this piece of land wasn't just a plot of dirt. It wasn't just a bit of real estate. It was an inheritance from his fathers, which God himself had divvied up when the people of Israel reached the promised land generations earlier. Faithful Israelites did not take land lightly. It was considered, in a sense, sacred. In Leviticus 25, God gave specific laws about how land was to be treated and stewarded by his people. That included letting the land rest after six years of sowing crops. That included returning land to its original owners once every 50 years, referred to as the year of Jubilee. So when you purchased a piece of land in Israel, you weren't truly buying it. You were basically renting it for however many years remained before the next Jubilee, when it went back to the original owners. But clearly, Naboth valued his land as a gift from God to his family, an inheritance from his fathers. And Naboth had zero interest in losing that land to Ahab just to make a few bucks. So how does Ahab respond to Naboth's refusal? Well, he pouts. He whines. He wallows in self-pity. A godly king or even just a godly man, would have respected Naboth's concern for his father's inheritance. He would have admired Naboth's stewardship of this gift from God. He would have appreciated Naboth's esteem for God's law. But Ahab is not a godly king. Instead, he's a drama queen. He acts like a selfish child who's been told he can't have any candy before dinner. Ahab cares far more about his momentary desires, something as silly and as trivial as a garden, more than he cares about his own citizens' rights, more than he cares about God's law. Again, to put it lightly, Ahab is not a godly king. But believe it or not, there is one other person in the story who cares even less about Naboth And less about God than Ahab does. And in the words of theologian Rod Stewart and the small faces, you know she's a mean old Jezebel. Chapter 21, verse 5. But Jezebel, his wife, came to Ahab and said to him, 
Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And Ahab said to her, because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, give me your vineyard for money or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And Naboth answered, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said to him, do you now govern Israel? Arise, eat bread, let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. We mentioned a few weeks ago that Queen Jezebel is often considered the real brains of the operation behind Ahab's corrupt leadership. We saw it briefly in chapter 19 when Jezebel, not Ahab, threatens Elijah's life and sends him fleeing to the hills. But we really start to see just how cruel Jezebel can be by the way she treats Naboth in this story. Jezebel arranges for Naboth to be framed. She organizes a city-wide gathering with Naboth at the head of the event and finds two false witnesses to publicly accuse him of blasphemy. In Old Testament Israel, blasphemy of God was a crime punishable by death. And Jezebel's plan works perfectly. Naboth is killed outside of the city after he's accused of blasphemy. And suddenly that piece of land that Ahab wanted for his garden is now available. But before you put all the blame on Jezebel, know that Ahab was complicit in multiple ways. Ahab knew that Jezebel was up to no good and had even less regard for God and less regard for the people's good than he did. But he never asked any questions. Ahab let Jezebel issue commands in his name and seal them with his ring. And when Naboth's land became available, Ahab certainly didn't turn it down. Verse 15. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive, but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. It's a gross injustice on the part of Israel's king. And for what? A trivial, meaningless vegetable garden. Before the first king was ever anointed in Israel, the prophet Samuel warned the people about what would come. First Samuel chapter eight, starting in verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards. That's a bit on the nose for today's passage and give them to his servants. 
He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Long before Samuel came around and wrote those words, God, in his wisdom and in his foreknowledge, laid down rules for how a future king of Israel should act. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set over you as king. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Looking at you, Jezebel. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him and he shall read it in all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Ahab is the exact sort of bad king that Samuel had warned the Israelites about. Ahab is the polar opposite of the good king of Deuteronomy 17. But while Ahab may be one of the most extreme examples of not living up to God's standards for kings... When you really think about it, neither did any other Israelite king. Not even David, the greatest king that Israel had ever known, fulfilled the standards that God had set down. You could even argue that David's sin against Uriah was just as bad, if not worse, than Ahab's sin against Naboth. Ahab stole Naboth's land. David stole Uriah's wife. Kings are sinners. Queens are sinners. People are sinners. And that's part of why God sent Elijah. Back to 1 Kings 21, verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? 
Elijah answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, bad king, and like the house of Bashah, the son of Ahijah, more bad kings, for the anger to which you have provoked me and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And any one of his who dies in that open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. Verse 25, there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. So Elijah does what any legitimate prophet of God should do. He calls Israel's leaders out on their sin. He pronounces God's judgment on both Ahab and Jezebel, which is graphically fulfilled later in the story. You can read 1 Kings 22 and 2 Kings 9 another day, but suffice it to say that Ahab and Jezebel learn that it is a dog-eat-dog world. Now, Ahab does repent of his sin after the confrontation with Elijah, but it's hard to buy that his repentance was genuine and long-lasting. While God does delay judgment upon Ahab, that says far more about God's grace than it does about Ahab's repentance. So I guess the question is, what do we learn from this sad, interesting, but distant and removed Old Testament story? What does a land dispute in ancient Israel have to teach Christians living in Fishers, Indiana in 2020? Is it a lesson about contentment versus greed? Don't be like Ahab. Well, there's worse advice out there. You really would be well served to not imitate Ahab. Or is it a lesson about using the prophetic voice, speaking truth to power? Be more like Elijah. Well, there's a place for that, too. Christians should be willing to call sin sin, even when those with power over us are the ones committing it. Or is this story a warning against marrying someone like Jezebel? Is it advice for real estate negotiations with a stubborn seller like Naboth? Is it some sort of testament about the abuse of eminent domain? Or is it a biblical argument in favor of cat people? Well, again, some of those lessons may have some truth to them. Not the cat people one, because dogs are better. But I don't think any of those are meant to be the primary takeaways for Christians like us reading this story. 
I think the biggest lesson of the story of Naboth's vineyard is something much bigger, something much more important, something that is absolutely relevant to believers today. This story is just one of many, many, many biblical reminders about the insufficiency of earthly, human powers, authorities, and rulers. Earlier we read Psalm 46, specifically read verses 3 and 4. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Proverbs 29, verse 26 says, Many seek the face of a ruler, but it is from the Lord that a man gets justice. Ahab may have gone as the worst ever Old Testament king. But the truth is that others would give him a run for his money. Not even the good kings in the Bible consistently live up to God's standards in their character, their actions, and their rule. While we should call earthly rulers, especially those who present themselves as believers, to meet some minimum criteria of justice and righteousness and wisdom and humility, Stories like this also remind us that we should never set our expectations too high. Ahab's sin against Naboth and the sins of every other ruler before him and after him inside the Bible and outside the Bible remind us that human kings and queens and powers and authorities will always fail us. Always. We need something We need someone different. We need someone better. And who is that someone better? Well, of course, it's Jesus Christ. But that's not the only way this story points our eyes to him. Like poor Naboth in 1 Kings 21, Jesus was innocent. In fact, perfectly so. Like poor Naboth, Jesus loved God's law fully, completely. Like poor Naboth, Jesus was sent to an unjust death by those whose job was to apply and execute God's law with justice and righteousness. Like poor Naboth, Jesus had false witnesses rise against him. Like poor Naboth, Jesus was wrongly accused of blasphemy. And like poor Naboth, Jesus died outside the city. But unlike poor Naboth, Jesus was not an unfortunate victim. He was a willing sacrifice. Unlike poor Naboth, Jesus was not a powerless man crushed by those with more authority than he had. He's the son of God with all authority on heaven and on earth. And unlike poor Naboth, Jesus' death was not for the sake of some trivial vegetable garden. It was to atone for the sins of all who would believe in him. Put not your trust in kings and queens, princes and princesses, presidents and candidates, Supreme Court justices and senators. 
they will always fail you in even the most trivial pursuits. Put your trust in Jesus Christ, the only perfect, righteous, and godly king. The king who does not steal from his people, but instead gave his life for his people. The king who has lived, died, risen, and ascended, and one day will return to rule and reign eternally with justice and righteousness. He's the king that we need. He's better than Ahab. He's better than Jezebel. He's better than David. He's better than any other earthly ruler you can come up with right now. He's the king we want. He's the king we need. And he is the king who will return soon. Put your hope in him, not in princes. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for the wisdom of your word, which stands the test of time. This is one of those passages that people could have read 1,500 years ago or 1,000 years ago or 500 years ago and had the same takeaway that we get. And it's just as relevant to us as it was to them. Time has proven that earthly rulers and earthly kings and earthly powers fail. They let us down. They fall short. And so, Lord, I pray that we would turn our eyes to the better king, that we would turn our eyes to your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that we would put our hope, our trust in him, rather than the latest so-called would-be supposed Messiah or deliverer. Again, they always fail. But Lord, remind us where our true hope lies. Remind us that we are citizens of heaven when we're tempted to put all of our eggs in the basket of earth. Lord, remind us of our standing with you because of what our king has done for us. Remind us of how he gave his life for us, his broken body and shed blood. Remind us of the inheritance that we have to look forward to the promised land that we have to look forward to. And I pray that you would sustain us and preserve us until the day comes when we can inherit that land. We no longer have to worry about injustice and unrighteousness and evil and sin, both on our parts and on the parts of those who rule over us. Lord, help us put our trust in Christ more than in princes. We love you. We worship you. We thank you for Jesus. We ask this all in his name. Amen.